the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. When you hear that verse, or you hear the word rejoice, what does it call to mind? Maybe a face, or a place, or a particular moment in time in full color and stereo that is brought forward that puts a smile on your face. On this Sunday, that theme of rejoicing is one that's peppered throughout the readings and the songs on this, as my girls always love to call Pink Candle Sunday, <laughs> as we remember what this journey leads us toward. First, the annual reminder in this season of renewal and return that prepares us for the entrance of Jesus into the world as we celebrate it on Christmas Eve and in the 12 days thereafter. But also, it serves to remind us to look out on a farther gaze of where we head as Christians, namely for Jesus' second coming and the call to be prepared daily for that moment of return as well. And thus, in a season of preparation, there's a moment to lift up our gaze a bit, to look at the outcome of the journey that we are in and what we prepare ourselves for. And so this Sunday, this Godet Sunday, as it's historically been called, is one with a theme of rejoicing. But of all the images, all the moments, all the things that might come to mind when you think about that word joy and rejoicing, if I were a betting man, I bet I'd say that none of you would associate that word with this place, a jail cell. And yet, it's from a place like that that Paul penned these very words while imprisoned writing the letter to the Philippians, as you perhaps know from your knowledge of the history of this book. And yet it's from a setting as that that Paul can sit in a wonderful place that probably doesn't even have flowers in the window to write, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. A place that doesn't inspire any rejoicing, doesn't inspire really much of anything. However, it's from that setting Paul writes these words and helps us understand what joy really means and then gives us three lessons in these short verses from Philippians 4 about how we are called to safeguard our joy, come what may. So I invite you to follow along with me in your Bible or on the screens in Philippians 4 this morning, as we first look at the definition of joy or rejoicing, and then we'll move to those three simple lessons that Paul calls forward for us as well. But before we jump in to chapter 4, it's worth noting that early on in Philippians, even before verse 15, which is before you, only four verses in, you trip over the word rejoice. In fact, if you were to count, you'd see the word joy or rejoicing 16 times 
in the four short chapters of the letter to the Philippians. Something Paul did not want to be missed. Something Paul hammered home even from a prison cell. The first time he rejoices in the Philippians' fellowship and who they are. And then with each subsequent mention of joy or rejoicing, he gives us a bit of clarity about what that word biblically, joy, truly means. In verse 15 there, we see that it's not shaken by external issues. Paul is referring to some uh, rivalry, some hostility, some conflict um, between he and others who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. And yet, um, despite come what may, he doesn't uh, lose his joy in the face of that. Even we see in chapter 2, verse 17, that the very threat of the loss of life itself cannot shake Paul's joy, which is quickly approaching toward martyrdom as he is reflecting on such things. Nothing can rob Paul's joy. And thus, he points to the depth of its meaning and its value. That great theologian from the 19th century, Karl Barth, noted of Paul and this passage, and I quote, that Paul describes joy as a defiant nonetheless, which he sets as a full stop against so many other factors that could serve to quell it. So joy, not being rocked by such things, does not rob him of his joy, but it also um, safeguards him in the midst of trials and tribulations against what could give rise, which is resentment, and all of those other bitternesses and things that we can imagine um, that could do that. So in many ways, um, as Paul writes this with repetition, he's reminding the Philippians of what joy is, but perhaps is reminding himself as well about what joy is, namely a settled state of mind, a peace that abides and is unshakable despite the highs and lows of life, a peace and a settled state of mind because it is grounded in faith in Christ Jesus, that it's unaffected by the moments of life, be they delight or dismay, because it's anchored in the one who stands over and above all of those things, namely Jesus Christ our Lord. And thus Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. If we look at verse 7, sorry, advance here, to chapter 4 where we pick up, you'll notice a familiar line, right? That's the closing benediction you hear three quarters of the year. The peace of God which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That peace that safeguards our hearts and minds is what Paul's talking about. It, it is, a, um, in many ways, the abiding principle. He uses um, the word guard to call to mind a garrison that would guard a city. It safeguards us against the things in life. Our peace, our joy that's rooted in Christ Jesus is anchored in Him. And insofar as we are always anchored in Christ Jesus, our joy abides. But the cautionary tale to which Paul turns and for which he gives three lessons in these short verses is this primary issue in verse 6 of worry and anxiety. 
Because at the root of worry and anxiety is a rumbling in our foundation about where our trust resides, the one in whom we place our trust. And if our trust can get um, untethered to Christ Jesus, then our joy is unanchored because it's not found in him. And thus, there's this reminder that we need to continually evaluate our hearts and lives as to where our confident trust is placed. And it, and it sneaks in ever so subtly. It's not like one day we wake up and say, I'm going to trust in myself over Jesus. But it's in the small ways and the small crevices and cracks, right? If, if the evil one can turn us in on ourselves, then all of a sudden we wake up and adrift wondering why we're so far apart from our joy because our Savior is far off on the horizon who hasn't moved, but we've drifted way away from him. And so Paul leaves us with three lessons. They're quite simple. They're actually um, so obvious, but so needed because we need to remain tethered to Christ Jesus at all times, in all seasons, so that our joy may there be firmly fixed. And so Paul calls to mind in verse 6 that in the face of such anxiety and worry, whatever comes in life, when those rumblings begin, when those things may begin to nag and gnaw at us, Paul says the way that we remain in rejoicing is quite simply through, first and foremost, remaining in prayer. We know that as believers, but what prayer does for us in a regular rhythm therein, right, is that it reorients us. It causes us to look back on the one in, play, in whom we place our confident trust, namely Jesus Christ our Lord. That in lifting up our cares and worries, it reminds us of the one who stands over and against them all. And Paul doesn't just leave us with, hey guys, remember to pray. But he also says, pray with what? Thanksgiving. We always know in this time of year, we're mindful of the things we're thankful for. But it's a lot harder to give thanks when you're in the midst of deep trials and tribulations. In fact, it's the farthest thing from your mind. And yet Paul, in a prison cell, is reminding those who would read these words that it's even in such a place that he lifts up not only his cares and his burdens, but his thanks. And that's how he opens his letter, giving thanks for these ones, these believers in Philippi who remain rooted in the gospel and who continue to advance it while he is in chains. And so there's this wonderful reminder that Paul himself is living out the very things he's calling forth from the people to whom he writes. Namely, that we should keep our hearts reoriented in prayer, but we should do so with thanksgiving in the hard times and in the carefree moments too. One of the joys of having children for us has been that my kids keep me oriented on this. One of the things that we've begun is we do a, a, a shortened version of family prayer um, on the mornings, which now, as things get a little later and later into the year and later and later starts, means that it's often happening in the car on the way through the drop-off line. <laughs> but as we recount these moments, we have this moment where I ask them, what are you thankful for? And I can't tell you how good it does my heart, no matter how heavy it is, no matter what burdens and faces and names are upon it, to hear those two little ones call forth things from the back seat. There's usually a, a moment of pause, and then they give thanks for one another um, and the people they can immediately see, and then they think a little deeper. And we get all sorts of things. My friend, 
who came to church, this person or that person. Uh, this past week, it was uh, give thanks for Jesus' birthday and the gift of love he brings, um, which is wonderful. And so as I listen to that, it helps me stay oriented as well, because it's easy at times to get lost in the midst of life. We can think of the things we need help with, but can we begin with a place of thanksgiving first and therein remain tethered and anchored to the joy that we have and the joy that we profess in Christ Jesus? It becomes our Pauline, nevertheless, come what may in life, I will remain anchored to him. And after Paul points to this lesson, he calls forward a second that actually comes a verse later and another reminder as well. In verse 8, as he begins his closing, finally, his kind of closing uh, reminders to them, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul, writing from a place that inspires no joy, reminds those to whom he writes, dwell on that which is good. Paul knows his context. The Philippians are steeped culturally in Stoic philosophy. Um, they have a pursuit of what is good, what is commendable, the highest good. Um, the highest end, of course, would have been in those days, right, to not work so that you could devote your life to ponder the greater mysteries of life. And yet, Paul is saying, that's great. If you do that, it'll always orient you to the one from whom all those mysteries unfold, namely God himself. And so he plays on that image and says, if that's the world in which you're in, then dwell on such things, because they'll bring you to the very throne room of God. In our day, as we have so many things that bombard us, in a different culture, where we have computers in our pockets, and we're bombarded with media and social media and consumer ads, and the list goes on and on and on, it's much easier to get lost in lesser things that are not worthy of our time and attention. And so, Paul leaves us with this wonderful reminder to remain in joy by not only being in prayer, but if I can continue my alliteration and, you know, a little bit of uh, Texas background, ponder. Ponder those things that are good, that are lovely, that are excellent. Dwell on those things because it's easy to get lost in all the rest. And so let me ask you, do you take time to do that? What you listen to, you can fill your mind with all sorts of podcast music and the list goes on and on, but um, the beauty and goodness of the church, the reason traditions like this have things done in a certain way and have historically written magnificent hymnody and the list goes on and on was to call forward time and time and time again. The beauty and goodness is that which comes from the fount of all beauty and goodness, God himself. So what is it that we listen to? Does it lift you up or drag you down? What is it that you watch? Is it beautiful and good and lovely? Or is it a perversion there of it? Remember, Satan never has his own tools. All he can do is twist what is good and lovely. And all of the wording that we get culturally that comes from that is a per perversion thereof. 
So what do we watch? What do we gaze upon? Is it that which lifts us up or that which does not? Paul reminds us that we should ponder these things. Rejoice in the Lord always, he says. Again, I say rejoice. The last safeguarding that he gives us so that our peace may remain is not just to be in prayer, not just to ponder such things, but then as we look back in verse 9, he grounds those moments in one's mind into action. And he says, what you've seen, what you've learned, what you've received, do what? Practice them. Practice those things as you've seen me do. Now, when Paul writes those words, he's not just giving a generic, you know, do good things. But when they would be read, those who would read those words would have specific lessons come to mind. They would remember the moment, so they should recall for one another when the gospel was brought. They would think of the teachings and the sermons and the preaching um, that uh, Paul did in their midst that rooted them first in faith in Christ Jesus and then from that foundation gave them ways to grow in the character of Jesus Christ. And then in the ways that he's written more broadly in the letters they would hear as he points to the times that he'd been shipwrecked and beaten, had much, had little, um, been buffeted, been in jailed, in prison, been stoned, cast out of cities. In the midst of all of those lessons which they knew and had heard, he tells them he remains in joy and he continues to put into practice those things. They would tell those stories. And as they do so, it would spur them on. And no doubt when they'd received this letter, knowing where he's located, they would know that indeed he's practicing those things and continuing to safeguard his own heart, even in the midst of where he is found. And so he leaves them. He leaves us with that similar final lesson, which is just quite simply that, to not only be in the right frame of mind, to not only be in the right outlook, but then to actually do something with it, to let our feet follow our heart and our prayers, that we don't just merely lift up the things of the world that we see or fret about them, but we actually do something about them, that we go out and bring the good news of Jesus, that we go in to our workplaces and into our communities and make invitations for others to come and find the peace that we have found. Um, people are open to this more often than not, at least to the very similar thing of simple thing, quite literally of just saying, can I pray for you? I've never had anybody say no. Um, usually they may be a little caught off guard, but they'll at least allow that. Um, what can we do to practice the things that we do, to put those things into practice? Uh, every Saturday, we take our girls to swim lessons, and they go over the same things every time, right? Um, we, we work on our, our, our strokes. We make sure we can flip over and take a breath and go back. And with each practice, they get a little bit more natural. And over the months, we've seen the progression of how it was very wooden, and someone had to flip them on their back to last week or yesterday, in fact. As I watched them, I noticed they didn't really require much assistance at all. Um, they could get going, and then they could just flip over and then flip back. It just became quite natural. And that's how it is with the Christian life. If we put those things into practice, they become more natural. We don't feel as though they're quite as mechanistic. They just become part of what we do, how we work, how we live, what we speak, the language and the words that roll off our tongue. And thus, we must put them into practice. But the word 
practice and of course the reminder that Paul leaves us with therein is this, that it will cost you something. It will always cost you something. It'll cost something to put the Christian life into practice. It's much easier to ponder these things and pray about these things and keep to yourself. When you put them into practice, it will cost you something. It always will. Paul finds himself in prison. Every saint down throughout history that fills the days throughout the church year, most of them are martyred um, or have reached a pretty violent end. It will cost you something. At the very least, it'll be isolation. Um, It's a lonely place to be. But I'd rather give up anything, as Paul writes earlier on in Philippians, nothing can compare to that cost that we have been given in Christ Jesus. Nothing else in this world is worth holding on to. And so when your circle of friends, for our younger ones, gets tighter and tighter, that's normal. So find others who are like you or raise others up. Don't feel like you're isolated, but grab others and spur them on. It's the same for us as adults, is it not? We have to find those we can be in fellowship with or we find our joy is untethered because we try to find things that are fleeting instead of being anchored in the one Christ Jesus who will never allow us to drift. It's a hard place. And I'll never tell you or look you in the eye and say that it's easy being a Christian. It's only going to get harder. But we must put these things into practice. And if I can find the quote on my notes here, there's a great reminder of this (laughs) from one by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer from generations past, who reminds us of this very note, who in his day in Germany, (laughs) which I can't find, there it is, rejoice, all right, who beautifully wrote in his generation, um, who dealt with so much trial and tribulation um, during the Third Reich and trying to stand in the gap politically and more importantly for the faith in the face of all that was going on in his country, wrote these words in The Cost of Discipleship, um, a great book that um, I'd commend to your own reading. He says, and I quote, If we answer the call to discipleship, where will it lead us? What decisions and partings will it demand? To answer this question, we have to go to him, for only he knows the answer. Only Jesus Christ, who bids us follow him, knows the journey's end. But we do know, that it will be a road of boundless mercy. Discipleship means joy. Discipleship means joy. It always does. And so Paul writes these words to us, remain in rejoicing, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Remain rightly oriented through prayer and thanksgiving, through pondering, through dwelling upon those things which inspire excellence and keep us oriented in this life. And then last but not least, practice those things. If you do that, the peace of God which passes all understanding, the person of peace, the prince of peace, will safeguard you through this life until you stand before him in his presence forevermore. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice.